You ever uh, had a cake or something, gave it to a kid? You said you got five minutes to eat this, and the way they eat it? I kind of feel like that's what's happening in this passage. I decided earlier to take four chapters, and then it's like, okay, now you've got 30 minutes and a week to prepare. So I feel kind of like the kid who's like shoving the food in his mouth and like choking a little bit, which is why it's important that this is a communal event and that preaching is not simply me talking, but you actively listening. So every week we send out a newsletter to the members of the church, and in that newsletter, it has a text for this week's sermon. And this is especially important, we have big chapters, for you to read ahead so that it's not entirely up to my skill to lay out the passage for you. So you can participate partly by reading ahead and saying, okay, I've I've got a little bit, he doesn't have as much work to do. Because in a passage like this, the more help, the better. So in many traditions, you'll hear the preacher say, can someone help me preach while he's preaching? You can help me preach partly by reading the chapter ahead of time. And that'll help me out a lot. And if you want to help me preach while I'm preaching, go for it. Brother Cox and uh, Miss Cox are perfect examples of helping the preacher preach. It's true. I told Mary when I was up here uh, singing, I, I said, it's scary being up here in front of everybody. She goes, yes, I know. So we're going to be in Exodus chapter 27, verse 20, all the way to chapter 31, verse 17. And of course, we're not going to read every every text, but similar to last week, we're going to try to get an overview of it. Last week was the tabernacle. God saying, here's how the building, here's how the tent should be built, the place. This week's a little bit different. God helps those who help themselves. You know who said that? It wasn't Jesus. It wasn't Paul. It was Benjamin Franklin, I think. But I think it perfectly illustrates America, specifically American religion. American religion, and I don't mean Christianity, I mean that religion which many Christians practice, but specifically in America, is you do the best you can, and God will make up the rest. You work so God can help you. That's not Christianity. That's individualism. That's works religion. Uh, Augustine said, God has created us in a way that we are restless until we find rest in God. In other words, you can't work enough for God to help you. God helps those who help themselves, except no one can help themselves. So let's look at this passage. We're going to see that laid out in three ways. We work for God. That's in the Bible. We contribute. Then the priest works for us. People work for God. The priest works for the people. And then the people rest with God. That's kind of the Christian pattern. So look, the people work for God. Christianity is built on the grace of God giving us. But it doesn't mean we just sit apathetically with nothing to do. You see, that's actually a curse tend to have no part in something. When something exciting is happening or it has to happen in the past, people talk about, I was there, I was part of that. You know, like maybe a big, I don't know how many of us would appreciate the context, but Woodstock, probably not would have gone to it, but it was a cultural event. 
And if you were there, you had part in a cultural event that represented a change in America. It's different than reading about it in a history book. Often, often people miss opportunities to be somewhere special, and they always regret that. God says, I'm not going to let that happen to you. So look here in the passage. God gives grace to the Israel, Israelite people to contribute. He says, I'm going to come down and meet with you in this tabernacle that we're building. But you get to help. You get to be a part of this. So he gives them three opportunities to contribute. All the way back in chapter 25, we skipped this. I don't know if you thought I was going to skip this text. He says, then the Lord spoke to Moses, the first part of the tabernacle building. Speak to the children of Israel that they bring me an offering. For from everyone who gives it willingly with his heart, you shall take my offering. God says, I'm going to build a place where I'm going to meet with you. But tell the people that they can take part in it. Everyone that wants to, bring an offering. This is the offering which they shall bring. Gold, silver, bronze, blue, purple, scarlet, thread, fine linen, goat's hair. God didn't need any of this. He let people bring it. He said, you get to come in with me and help me build something. Now, where did they get all this stuff from? Where did they get the gold from? Where did they get the fine linen from? They're poor slaves for 400 years. God gave it to them. He punished the Egyptians with plagues so that, the Bible says, so that they would give them gold and, and jewelry and fine linen to make them leave. God says, all that stuff you got from the Egyptians... I gave it to you so that you could be a part of what I'm doing. God gave them so they could give back. Then he says, I want life offerings. Remember chapter 29? He says, give of your life. And worship. What is worship except saying, take something I have, God, as a symbol of your ownership, of your greatness. So chapter 29 and verse 42 This shall be a continual burnt offering throughout your generations at the door of the tabernacle of meeting before the Lord, where I will meet with you to speak with you. And there I'll meet with the children of Israel. The tabernacle shall be sanctified by my glory. So I'll consecrate the tabernacle of meeting and the altar. A continual burnt offering where God will meet with them. See, this doesn't mean anything unless you believe that God's glory is something worth having. God says, I want to meet with you and show you my glory. And you get to take part in that by giving me something, a sacrifice, a continual burnt offering. But again, God gave them everything they had so that they could be a part of his worship service. Chapter 27, God says, make a a lampstand or a lampstand of gold. What do you do with lampstands? You burn them. He says in chapter 27, verse 20, and you should command the children of Israel that they bring you pure oil of pressed olives for the light, to cause the lamp to burn continually. In the desert, it gets really dark. But the lampstand was always burning. You ever seen a tent? They're not really sealed up very well. There's always light coming outside. So in the camp, throughout the entire night, if you woke up at any point during the night, the lamp was burning. As a symbol of God's continual presence. You see, when you go to bed, what do you do with, with candles? If you fall asleep with a candle in your bed, what happens? I have a friend who did that, and they woke up. There's a fire. So you always put the candle out when you go to bed. 
So when God says, have a candle burning continually, it's a symbol that God never goes to bed. But who brings the oil for that? God says, I'll let you bring it. I'll let you worship me. I'll let you show my glory. I don't need you. I'm going to let you. And so God gives him a chance to worship him. And then there's an interesting passage, chapter 30, about ransom money. Chapter 30, verse 11. This is all about the people working. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, when you take the census of the children of Israel for their number, why would you take a census? Well, two reasons in this time. Money and war. Find out who's eligible, right? If you're an American citizen uh, and you're male, you have to register for the draft, selective service. It's sort of a census to say you're eligible. And if you uh, are an American citizen, you have to pay taxes. They want to know who you are. So it is in the Old Testament. <clears throat> in this case, it would be for war. So we take a census of the children of Israel for their number. Then every man shall give a ransom for himself to the Lord. When you number them, that there be no plague among them when you number them. That is what everyone among those who are numbered shall give. Half a shekel. Half a shekel wasn't that much money. Very low sum. It's hard to tell how much money was worth back then. It was a very small amount. Everyone included among those who are numbered from 20 years old and above shall give an offering. So when you register for the draft, it's 18. Here it's 20. The rich shall not give more, and the poor shall not give less than half a shekel. What's happening here? God's saying, I'm going to want you to fight for my glory. And because you get to do that, you have to pay me. Because God owns their lives. And it's also saying, no one's life is worth more than anybody else's. So the rich, poor, half a shekel. Everyone's equal because God owns everyone equally. No one's worth more to God than anyone else. And so what he says here is you pay some money to represent the fact to be a part of being allowed to live. Now, do you think a human life's worth half a shekel? Does anyone? Let's, let's say it's somewhere between $1 and $50. That's not very much money, is it? So little money that everyone could pay it. They weren't actually ransoming their lives. Can you imagine someone kidnapping you and then telling your family, pay me $25 or I'm going to kill them? You'd be like, okay, that's it. I'll pay you 50. So God's saying, give me $25 for your life so that you can be a part of this. Not because God needs the money. In fact, he says, and you shall take the atonement money of the children of Israel and shall point it for the service of the tabernacle. Who is the tabernacle for? The people. So he's taking their money for them so that they can be a part of it. God wants his people to be a part of what he's doing. He wants them to contribute so they can share a little bit in the joy of what happens. And then finally he says, I want you to, to work. Skill offering. Chapter 31. You see, God gave all these plans for this elaborate tabernacle. But someone's got to build it, right? We've got to do the work. So he says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him with the Spirit of God. Now, when we hear that, we usually think miracles are about to happen, right? Filled with the Spirit of God, he's going to part the Red Sea, or he's going to make water into wine, or he's going to feed a bunch of people. What does he say? 
I filled him with the Spirit of God in wisdom and understanding and knowledge and in all manner of workmanship to design artistic works, gold, silver, bronze, cutting jewels, carving wood. God filled him with the Spirit so he could be a worker. And he says, he, and the people that are going to help him, he did the same thing. God says, I don't need you, but I'm going to build a place so that I can be with you. But I want you to build it. But you can't. So I'm going to fill you with my spirit to give you the ability to build a place so that you can be benefited from it. You see what God's doing here? He's giving them gifts so that they can turn around and use them. These men were filled with the spirit of God so that they could carve wood, they could build buildings, they could make tents for God's glory. What does this tell us about ourselves? Giving is a grace. We're like, wait, wait, wait. Giving means I give up something. No. God lets you give. So often money is all about what you can do with it. Give it to me so I can do something with it. The church wants your money, right? No, God wants you to give for your sake. Giving is a response to God's gift. Stingy people think they haven't gotten what they deserve. Generous people know they've gotten more than they deserve. That's the difference. See, guilt trips for giving don't make sense. Giving is something that flows out of your heart. Remember what he said? Every man whose heart moves him. The Bible tells us the same thing, 1 Corinthians 9. So let each one, this is the New Testament, this is for the church. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. God doesn't need our money. He, do, he lets us give for our sake. But if we don't want to do it, then God's like, I'm not going to take money I don't need from you with a bad attitude. I want you to do it because you want to do it as an act of worship. And here's why. Now may he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for the food supply and multiply the seed you have sown and increase the fruits of your righteousness. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. That's the context of giving. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Now respond. If God gives you money, a natural response is to do what? Give some of that money away. If God gives you skills, what do you do? You recognize the gifts and you give them back as an act of worship. But see, back then, God gave them some stuff and they gave back some part of it. But in the New Testament, in the church, in the New Covenant... There's a higher standard. God wants everything. We are familiar, some of us are familiar with the verse in Romans chapter 12. He's talking to the church. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. See, at the tabernacle they brought goats and lambs and they sacrificed them. He said, I don't want that anymore. I want you. I want your whole life for me. And we're like, wow, that's a lot. Man, that's a lot. But you know what the previous verses say? We always skip it because Romans chapter 12 starts the chapter. But the end of chapter 11 says this. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has become his counselor? Or who has first given to him and it shall be repaid to him? For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. I therefore, brethren, beseech you, by the mercies of God, present your bodies a living sacrifice. See, if you don't want to give, it's because you miss what God did for you. 
the indescribable riches of God. When you realize that, you're like, please let me give. I want to give my whole life to God because of what he's given to me first. God makes it so easy to give. He doesn't ask from us first. He first gives to us and then asks us to respond. He says, by the mercies of God. The mercy is God gives to us so that he can get from us. It's all from God. He says, a living sacrifice, which is your reasonable service. Once you realize what God's done for you, it's only reasonable. It only makes sense to give some of it back. Stingy people think they haven't gotten what's reasonable. They're like, you know what? I deserve something. God held it back from me. I was expecting these things, but God held it back. And now I'm supposed to give more to God? I never got what I deserved in the first place. That's an unchristian attitude. It's an entitled attitude. It's a me-first attitude. A God-first attitude realizes what he's given to us. And that's what he gave to the people of Israel. And that's what he's teaching us. People work for God because of what God's given to them. That's the good news. Here's the bad news. People's contributions are worthless to God. They're unholy. God doesn't like them. Romans 3, chapter 23 says, your righteousnesses, your good works, your contributions to God are as filthy rags. Wait, wait. My good stuff that I give to God because I want to serve him, God says that's dirty rags. What do you do with dirty rags? And these aren't just dirty rags that you like wiped your counter with. These are really dirty rags. These are dirty rags you don't want to touch. You know, you use it and you put it and you like get a bag to pick it up again. That's what your good works are to God. That's a paradox, isn't it? But doesn't it make sense that sinful people who need God, what can we produce except for sinful things? You see, God gives us good things and we corrupt them. God gives us an opportunity to work and we work for ourselves. He gives us a family and we mistreat them. He gives us money and we're greedy. He gives us a job and we're selfish. He gives us health and we waste it on our own pleasure. God gives us good gifts and we corrupt them and then say, now that we've corrupted them, here, God, you can have some of it back. That's what happened in the Old Testament, too. God says, build me a tabernacle, but what you build me is not good enough for me. You see, this is passage, these passages are all about work. It's about us working and God saying, your work's not good enough because it's corrupted by you. Remember when they were to build an altar to God in the 10 chapters ago? He said, don't mess with it. Get some rocks and pile them up and don't carve them. Don't chisel them. Don't do anything to them. If you do, you've made it an unholy altar. The minute you alter it, you've messed it up. And yet he tells them to build a tabernacle with their own skill. Making things, building things. By definition, profaning them, corrupting them. So he gives them a priest. And the priest works for the people to fix all the bad things that they brought to God. See, we're so much about the bad things we do, we need to realize that the good things we do need help. The good things we do need to be fixed. If you think your good works are good, you can't be a Christian. Because now it's self-righteousness. So God says, I'll give you a priest. This priest will go between heaven and earth. In chapter 28, 
This priest is given clothes to wear to symbolize his office. Chapter 28, And you shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother, for glory and for beauty. In verse 5, You shall take gold, blue, purple, scarlet, and fine linen. You should make an ephod of gold, blue, purple, and scarlet, fine woven linen, artistically worked. Does that sound familiar? It matches the tabernacle. The tabernacle was made with these same colors in the same way. So the priest's clothes matched the tabernacle. When he walked in, his color coordinated with the inside of the tabernacle. The inside of the tabernacle was representing heaven. So the priest wore clothes that represented he, was, he fit into heaven. He was comfortable in the heavenly space. His clothes represented that. He was a go-between. But then look what he does. So he wears clothes that represent the heavenly space of the tabernacle. But then verse 9 says, Then, tell him how to build this outfit. Then you shall take two onyx stones and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel. Six of their names on one stone and six of their names on the other stone in order of their birth. Talking about real people. With the work of an engraver in stone, you shall engrave the two stones. And you shall put the two stones on the shoulders of the ephod, that was the garment, as memorial stones for the sons of Israel. So Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders as a memorial. See what's happening? He wears clothes that represent heaven, and then on his shoulder he carries the names of the people. So when he goes into the tabernacle, he's, he's between two worlds. He's got a foot in both worlds. But it goes further. And you should make a breastplate of judgment, artistically woven. Verse 17, you should put settings of stone in it, four rows of stone. And it gives a description of, of the gems. So 12 gems, four rows of three, that covered an entire chest, diamonds, all sorts of jazz. We're not exactly sure what kind of stones they were, but they're precious stones. Can you imagine wearing a giant shirt full of diamonds? And then what does he do with the names, with the shirts, with the, with the stones? And the stones shall have the names of the sons of Israel, 12 according to their names, like the engraving of a signet, each one with its own name. They should be according to the 12 tribes. Each precious stone had the name, Judah, Simeon. Each name was given, all 12 of them. Why? Verse 29. So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel on the breastplate of judgment over his heart. When he goes into the holy place as a memorial before the Lord continually. And you put in the breastplate the stones of judgment, and they shall be over Aaron's heart when he goes before the Lord. So that Aaron shall bear the judgment of the children of Israel over his heart before the Lord continually. Aaron's working for the people and God. He says, go between. The people aren't, they're not good enough. So the priest represents them with these stones with their names on them. Bearing them before the Lord. He's a go-between. He's prepared and sanctified. Entire chapter 29 talks about this elaborate process where he's washed. They take him, they, they wash him completely. Then they take an animal. In verse 10, you shall have the bull brought before the tabernacle meeting, and Aaron and his sons shall put their hands on the head of the bull. What's going on here? You know how bad the people are? Aaron's one of the people. But he's not just one of the people. He represents all the people. So when he walks into the holy place, he should think to himself, I don't deserve to be here. But then he has to say, I've got to represent everyone else who doesn't deserve to be here. So they're out there doing the wrong thing. I answer for it. 
Every single one of the children of Israel, Aaron answered for. Every single one of them. Every sin that was committed, he bore because he carried their names on him. So something needs to, that needs to be fixed, doesn't it? Would you like to bear the sins of everybody in this room? No, thanks. I can't handle my own stuff. So they brought a bull, and they shall put their hands on the head of the bull. Then you shall kill the bull. See the symbolism? All the weight of Israel's sins pressing down on Aaron. This garment that he's wearing, these gemstones, they look beautiful, but Aaron's like, too much. So he puts the hands on the bull, and it symbolically transfers the sin to the bull. And then what happens to the bull? Kill it. See the symbolism? The people's sin goes to Aaron. Aaron's sin goes to the bull. The bull dies. You shall burn with fire outside the camp. It is a sin offering. So now Aaron's like, whew, got that off of me. Now I can go in. But it's further than that. See, the, the priest had to be a go-between. He had to be prepared. He had to be sanctified. The sins washed away. He had to be called. Aaron didn't volunteer. God called him. He had to be atoned for his sins, but he had to be in communion with God. So there's a ceremony here. You shall take the other ram, and Aaron and his son shall put their hands on the head of the ram. Verse 19. Then you shall kill the ram, but not for sin. See, the sin's gone to the bull. The bull's gone. Now what is this? He's putting his hands, symbolic representation. You shall kill the ram, take some of its blood, and put it on the tip of the right ear of Aaron. And you shall take some of the blood that is on the altar. And all the way down, verse 31. And you shall take the ram of the consecration and boil its flesh in the holy place. And then Aaron and his son shall eat the flesh of the ram. Not burn it. That was a sin sacrifice. This sacrifice is different. This is a meal. Then Aaron and his son shall eat the flesh of the ram and the bread that is in the basket by the door of the tabernacle of meeting. They shall eat those things with which the atonement was made to consecrate and to sanctify them. But an outsider shall not eat them because they're holy. The priest needed to have a meal with God before he could go for the people. There had to be a symbol that God and the priest were on the same page, that they were in fellowship together, that they were working together. You see, you don't want someone working for you. You ever like a liaison that's got a bad reputation with the other side? You don't want that guy working for you. You want somebody who's got a good relationship with the other side. That's what the priest was doing. His own sins were gone. Now he's having a meal to symbolize he and God are friends. That's who you want working for you. And then he transforms the people's offering that were unholy into holy offerings. Chapter 28 and verse 36, it says, making the clothes, you shall also make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it like the engraving of a signet, holiness to the Lord. And you shall put it on the turban on Aaron's head. So it shall be on Aaron's forehead that Aaron may bear the iniquity of the holy things. See the contradiction? He shall bear the iniquity, the unholiness of the holy things, which the children of Israel hallow in all their holy gifts. The contradiction, the people brought the best they had. And God says, it's not good enough. So give it to the priest and he will make it holy. Holiness to the Lord written on his forehead to say, you give the best you can and God doesn't want it. So give it to the priest and then the priest will take it to God. And that transfer takes what was unholy and makes it holy. 
Chapter 29, verse 37. Seven days you shall make atonement for the altar. This is the priest working. And sanctify it. And the altar shall be most holy. That's great. But whatever touches the altar must be holy. You see, by sanctifying the altar, what touches the altar becomes holy. They bring their unholy sacrifice to a holy priest, and the priest transforms it into something that God actually wants. Chapter 30, verse 10. And Aaron shall make atonement upon his horn, so they're to build this altar of incense, which represents their prayers being lifted to God, but God doesn't want to hear your prayers. You're a sinner. Israel was sinful. So what does Aaron do? Aaron works for the people. And Aaron shall make atonement upon its horns once a year with the blood of the sin offering of atonement. Once a year he shall make atonement upon it throughout your generations. It is most holy to the Lord. Aaron is working for the people. He's saying, give me all your bad stuff. I'll go through this working process. I'll make it to something that God loves to smell. God loves to see. Transforming bad things into good things. This includes the work they did. Remember, he filled them with their spirit, with his spirit to build the tabernacle? Still not good enough. So the priest gets his anointing oil. With it, you shall anoint the tabernacle of meeting and the ark of the testimony, the table and all its utensils, the lampstand and its utensils, and the altar of incense, the altar of burnt offering with all its utensils, and the laver and the base. You shall consecrate them that they may be most holy. Whatever touches them must be holy. God says, I'm going to give you the spirit to build this stuff, but I don't want it. So get this priest to come in and make it holy. God doesn't want your money. It's dirty money. God doesn't want your volunteering hours. You stole them from God. You corrupted them with your... Even when you worship and sing, you're doing it partly for yourself. You're distracted. You're pretending. All the things that we bring to God... God doesn't want. So what does God do? He sends us someone to work for us because our work's not good enough. So Christ comes down as the high priest. The same thing here. The God-man, comfortable in heaven, matches heaven, comfortable on earth, matches us. Hebrews chapter 2. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one. For which reason he, Jesus, is not ashamed to call them brethren. As much then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same. Therefore, in all things he had to be made like his brethren. He had to take our names and put them on his shoulders. Carve our names into a stone and put them on his chest. Remember the song we sang? Our name is graven into his hands. He became like us. He represents us. He's prepared for us. Hebrews chapter 5. So also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest, but it was said to him, you are a priest forever. Who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplication, remember the, the priests in the Old Testament, they had to go through this process. So Christ, with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear. Though he was a son, though he was God, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And having been perfected, having gone through the qualification process to prove 
that he's good enough, that he's someone who can work for us. He became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him, called by God as a high priest. That's the work. You see, we think so much about the forgiveness, we forget about the work. The priest who's constantly going in and out, in and out, taking the sacrifice to God. That priest better be qualified. So Christ is that high priest. And what does he do? He transforms us. So remember God says, present your body as a living sacrifice? But your body's corrupt, isn't it? So Christ transforms it. Hebrews chapter 10, through his work, which does offer forgiveness, but also offers us access. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, this high priest, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down. From that time, wait until his enemies are made his footstool. But here, get this, because we, we miss this sometimes. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. God says, present your body a living sacrifice, but I don't want it. So Jesus dies to perfect us. Why does God listen to you sing? Because Jesus takes your songs, changes them, and gives them to God. The cross is not just about wiping away the past. It's about changing you, changing your offerings. So now when you give, it doesn't have to be good enough. Only Jesus has to be good enough. He transforms us. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let's hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us, but one who in every respect is tempted we are, as we are, yet without sin, let us then with confidence draw near the throne of grace with our poor, unholy offerings. Confidently draw near and confidently offer them to God. That way we may receive mercy and find grace in time of need. If you think God wants your stuff, he doesn't. But if you realize God doesn't want your stuff and you offer it to Jesus, he will change it for you and God will receive it. That's the work of Jesus. Not our work. His work. We sang the song, Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love. Whoever lives and pleads for me. You don't plead for yourself before God. Aren't you glad? His, my name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart just like that priest in the Old Testament with the names of the sons of Israel on his heart. Our names are on Jesus' heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. You see, it's not about feeling bad for how bad you are. It's about looking to Christ and seeing how good he is. And as long as he's good, and as long as he's in heaven, you're okay. And because we know who Christ is, that perfect sacrifice, victorious, no one's kicking him out of heaven, which means no one's kicking us out of heaven. And everything we bring to God is taken and gladly received, and we get to rejoice being part of it. But this chapter ends in an interesting way. To reinforce the fact that God works for us and that our work is not that, that important, he ends the entire section of the tabernacle with the Sabbath. Chapter 31, verse 12. And the Lord said to Moses, after you've done all these things, 
Speak also to the children of Israel, saying, Surely my Sabbaths you shall keep. Sabbath means rest. For it is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may, you may know that the, I am the Lord who sanctifies you. In case you forgot and thought you could work your way up, this is a reminder. You shall keep the Sabbath, therefore, for it is holy to you. Everyone who profanes it shall surely be put to death. If you worked on a Saturday, you were killed. For whoever does any work on it, that person shall be cut off from among his people. Work shall be done for six days, but on the seventh is the Sabbath of rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day, he shall surely be put to death. There's only two choices here. Don't work or die. He brought it all the way down to where everyone can get it. You either rest and stop working or you die. You want to work your way into God's presence? You die. You want to perfect yourself? You die. But if you'll just rest, you'll live. This is a sign of the covenant. Verse 31, verse 16. Therefore, the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath to observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as a perpetual covenant. Isn't it interesting that it's not the sacrifice that's the sign of the covenant? It's not the incense that's a sign of the covenant. It's not the tabernacle. It's the Sabbath that's a sign of the covenant. The sign of the bond between God and man is not doing anything. You sit on Saturday and you kick your feet up back in the Old Testament and you just said, God loves me. And the minute you start working, God kills you. What a powerful symbol of the relationship between God and his people. And that's what a Christian is. Christ gives us this rest. And you either rest or you die. For the wages, for the payment, for what you get for your work, for the wages of your work of sin is death. That's the New Testament. That's Jesus talking. Your payment for work is death. Wait a minute. I don't want to work anymore. If all I get for my hard work is death, I quit. And Jesus is like, great. Now you can come in. Now you can rest. Now you can kick up your feet and say, man, Jesus did it all. Jesus paid it all. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works. You see the contrast? You want God's righteousness? Stop trying to get it. Just stop. Just stop trying to get God's righteousness, and then he'll give it to you. Christ died so you don't have to. Christ worked so you don't have to. Weary, working, burden one, wherefore, wherefore toil you so? Cease all you're doing. All was done long, long ago till Jesus' work you cling by simple faith. Doing is a deadly thing. Doing ends in death. Cast your deadly doing down. Down at Jesus' feet. Stand in him and him alone. Gloriously complete. Is that what you want? You want to just stop? Just give up? Just rest? God says, I'll give it to you. I'll give you what you've been looking for. The book of Revelation ends with these promises to those who trust Christ. 
To the one who conquers, I'll give him some of the hidden manna. And I'll give him a white stone with a new name written on it that no one knows except the one who receives it. He who conquers, I'll make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, my own new name. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. God wants you to sit down and rest. And you can have that simply by saying, Jesus, I'm done. I'm done. Take it. And Jesus says, I'll do it for you. Don't work your way into God's grace. Let Jesus work for you. Let's pray.